Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, and welcome to episode eight of the Baseball From Home podcast. I'm Connor McKnight. He's Joe Brand. And we are brought to you by the House of L podcast network. Lots to get to on episode eight of the show and wins on both sides of town, which is always more fun to talk about than losses or COVID. I've been covering baseball for radio stations in Chicago the last 10 years. Joe has been broadcasting minor league baseball for the last nine and covers the White Sox and Cubs for WGN Radio right now. You can find us both on Twitter. I'm at C1 McKnight. He is at Joe underscore brand one. We cover the Cubs and we cover the White Sox on every single show. We'll also kick it around to some Major League Baseball headlines and boy are there a couple of intriguing ones right now. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to listen. We would love it if you rated and reviewed the show. Really appreciate that. Give it five stars because otherwise uh, I, I cry at night and it's just it's very difficult for everyone around me to get to sleep What with the, uh, the volume of the crying. Joe, uh, lots to get to. Wins on both sides. What's on your agenda? Well, not only is it episode eight, Connor, it's also the red shirt edition. We're both wearing red shirts. We're kind of like Tiger Woods. I guess so many wins in Chicago baseball, then we just put on red shirts. I don't know. I'm kind of pumped for this one just because there is so much excitement on both sides of town. And what do we have beginning on Friday? A three-game series between both sides of town. These series are always so much more fun when both teams are competitive and uh, such a weird year, such a weird season. I think Chicago baseball fans really deserve this weekend. We'll have to decide what we want to do with the pod format-wise because, you know, usually we split it Cubs and Sox and then kind of your Major League Baseball slap it around kind of thing. But we could just do one big pod and combine everything into one i guess that's a problem for future joe and future connor to figure out but we'll get to it i promise you uh we are brought to you not only by the house of l network but also by the fine folks at team hockberg uh david hockberg and his team helped me wrap up my mortgage for the house i'm currently in for the closet i'm currently broadcasting from uh, the same mortgage. I didn't. He didn't give me a new mortgage on the closet and then one for the house. Although he probably could. The thing about Team Hockberg is he probably could. If I looked at him, it was like, hey, David, I want the I want one mortgage for the house for the two beds, the two baths, living room, the kitchen, but I want a separate one for the closet. He'd look at me and say, you're an idiot, but we can do that for you because, quite frankly, that's what Team Hockberg does, right? I mean, they're. Part of the reason I chose them, big part of the reason I chose them, was because I knew that their loan officers were going to help me through each and every step because they knew who I, they, they know who I am. They understood what it was about me 
that was driving my home search and the need for the mortgage and everything else. I was comfortable and confident that they understood me through the process and that was critical for my mortgage loan. Uh, you can call them at 855-56-DAVID or head to the website at 56david.com. Homeside Financial is an equal housing lender. NMLS 1124061. On every show, we flip the coin of destiny to decide who goes first, the Cubs or the Sox. And it's not on every show, I know, but I like to say it that way. Heads, it's the Cubs. Tails, it's the White Sox. Coins in the air. And it's the heads again. It's it's we begin with the Cubs, who had the off day. Are you sure it's not a two-headed? Is that it's, a two-headed it's, coin? It's not. I got Washington on one side, and I get the uh, Statue of Liberty on the other. It's it's a gold one-dollar coin on my phone because who has coins anymore? We've got a coin shortage going on. Um, Cubs are sixteen and eight. They had the off day Thursday. If you run their record through the very complicated each win and loss is worth 2.7, that means that they are 43.2 and 21.6. Five games against the Cardinals this past week, so we have a lot to get to, and we'll try and get to all of it. But it starts at the beginning for me, Joe, because after playing, losing games to the Brewers and, and not playing great but also not playing the kind of baseball that I'd label as horrible. Losing that first one of the Cardinals, day one of a doubleheader, looked ugly. They came back and snatched one in game two. And really, truly, that's a big point of this season for the Cubs. You know, I mean, it, it, on, on fan graphs, they're like a 94% chance to make the playoffs, right? But turning that around right then and there seemed outsized to me, especially knowing that each one of those games was only going to be seven innings. I totally agree. It just seemed like three very big boy wins for the Chicago Cubs. Uh, it's really easy to just pack up the day and get swept in that doubleheader on both days, really. But but they just come back. They fight back late. Uh, coincidentally, it's David Bodie in a lot of those instances who I want to get to in a little bit. But the other thing is you're seeing Adbert Alizé coming up and contributing in this rotation. We're seeing Craig Kimbrell maybe turning a corner, but more importantly, you're seeing this team able to rejuvenate the offense, totally steal the momentum from the St. Louis Cardinals, and take back those games. And that is definitely something you see from a winning team. Because let's face it, it took a lot of wind out of the sails to lose four straight, especially to the teams that you did in the fashion that you did. And I get it, all you're doing is facing division opponents these days. But they played the Brewers so tough early on, you thought that the series was just at hand and then okay maybe Milwaukee's a little bit tougher than we thought and here comes St. Louis they just had a great series against the White Sox but they're able to stop them dead in their tracks I thought this was a really defining week for the Cubs because I mean they came back in multiple games and win a five-game series let's talk about David Bodie because comebacks were such a big part of the turnaround for the Cubs in that Cardinal series uh, again, day off on Thursday, and then they get the White Sox for three at Wrigley Field over the weekend. I David Bodie is playing exceptionally well. Um, his defense is so much better than I thought it could be, specifically at third, but also in, including second base. 
I always knew him to be much more athletic than he looks, right? Like he's he's shaped roughly like a bowling ball, but that doesn't mean he can't move side to side and, and has a better arm than I think you give him credit for too. He's kind of one of those um, quick release kind of guys, not at third necessarily, but I'm talking about those middle infield spots. He's kind of that quick release guy who who has a better arm than he looks because he's able to get it out fast and makes that decision fairly quickly. At third, he's kind of got that Byron Leftwich long wheel around, takes forever to unload it thing. But enough, enough to get it there, and that's fine. That works for me. But it's the offense that, that has it working for him right now and has the Cubs really staying afloat because just like the last pod, just like episode seven, we're still dealing with a Cubs offense that doesn't have Javi Baez rolling, that doesn't have Chris Bryant rolling, and that doesn't have Kyle Schwarber rolling. Um, Wilson Contreras is in a bit of a different category, but I certainly wouldn't qualify him as rolling either. So those are big names to have out of big contributions uh, for the Cubs against the Cardinals in five games. I know I've talked about this weeks before how David Bodie was a Kane County Cougar and he spent three years in single-A baseball but the fact that we're talking about th- that I truly believe right now you are probably better off playing David Bodie than Chris Bryant, a guy that did not play single-A baseball, and the Kane County Cougars will tell you that. All they needed to do was play one game in Kane County for for them to say, right. oh, former Cougar Chris Bryant. No, he jumped up from Boise to the Florida State League. David Bodie was a guy I thought, again, would get released. Then he stuck around in the organization, became an Arizona Fall League player. Here's the thing. you got to credit David Bodie for what he's been able to do. You have to credit the Cubs for scouting David Bodie, for developing David Bodie, for hanging on to David Bodie. And right now you've got a very clutch player that can play multiple positions for very cheap. And it's funny you bring up his size and his stature and how he looks defensively because he, I I know, he's not your traditional third baseman looking type, but he just seems so fluid right now. He's in complete control of where his body's at, where to have his his footwork when throwing it over to first base. It's, whenever it's in a cross-the-body type throw, it's it's not rushed. He, He knows where he's getting at. He knows what he's doing. And it's, it's so weird you brought up comparisons with him because, honestly, uh, yesterday or on Wednesday, when the Cubs are coming back in that second game and Bodie's up with the bases loaded, I- I'm flipping through the Cubs and the Sox games, and that top bar is covering up basically David Bodie's chest to above everything above. And I don't know why, but I thought of Aramis Ramirez. I, I just saw bases loaded. I just saw kind of his stance, and I'm like, why did Aramis Ramirez just pop into my head? And then David Bodie muscles a shot up the middle. That was kind of a remembrance of the very highly liked Cubs third baseman. But I don't know. I'm I'm very high on David Bodie right now. And I'm not saying that, you know, for the rest of the foreseen future, David Bodie over Chris Bryant, I think he's got some health issues in his hands and his wrists. I mean, judging by the way he swings the bat and how he's always had such a quick swing, and that's why he's had so much success at the plate, I, I think David Bodie is the guy to go to right now. Not in the long-term future, maybe, but probably not. But right now, I think you got to play with the hot hand of David Bodie. 
He's certainly a hot hand in the last uh, four games, only two starts. And I know we're playing with the small sample size, but that is this season, right? It's all small sample size. 375, 444, 750 across the board. He's got the big home run, uh, a nice little pinch hit there too. I Chris Bryant is obviously the, the biggest issue with the Cubs on the negative side of the ledger. For me... What what's happening here? And Sahadev Sharma did a great job, kind of. He's he's always done a great job talking about Bryant's mechanics and where he's at and how he's feeling. But you know, you hear David Ross talk about that wrist injury that he's been dealing with for about a week now, some other bumps and bruises. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if he's if he's banged up. But that that doesn't necessarily for me that doesn't necessarily change the worry I have when I see Chris Bryant swinging and missing as often as he has been on fastballs in the strike zone, which is something that's ticked up for him lately. If he was connecting with those, but, you know, kind of weakly tapping them or maybe rolling them over to third or something like that, for me, that's easier to go, okay, he's making contact, he has his timing, but he doesn't quite have the strength or the durability at this point in his hands, his wrist, his back, whatever's dealing, whatever he's dealing with to hit that ball with authority. But these are swings and misses on balls in the strike zone. For Javi Baez, uh, Sharma chronicled kind of a similar problem, though it's with breaking balls in the strike zone. He's swinging and missing on a boatload of breaking balls all in the strike zone. Neither of them are chasing all that much, chasing uh, chasing balls outside the strike zone. But they are not hitting with authority the pitches that they're getting in the zone, and that's a big problem for the Cubs. So as much as you've seen the results of you know, a, a revamped infrastructure as it relates to pitching, pitch framing, tunneling, all these kind of things. It, it's yet to maybe take hold or or make the quick turnaround that the Cubs do need for Bryant, for Baez, for Contreras, for Schwarber. Like, we're still kind of watching the same sorts of scuffling that's affected them in seasons past. Now, I... I think Bryant's a guy that you let get his ABs, right? I, I think he's immensely talented, even though some Cubs fans don't. I think he's immensely filled with upside. I think he is the kind of guy that you want to build a franchise around. He's struggling right now, and he's banged up. For my money, as long as he looks at you and says, I am healthy enough to go play and not make this worse, you give him every at-bat you can find for him, even if that is in the DH spot, knowing that he's a good defender anywhere you put him. That was going to be my next question. I, I mean, where do you put him? Do you put him at DH? Because Kyle Schwarber right now is is earning that spot in left field, and we, we've already talked about what David Bodie's been able to do at third base, and I know we keep bringing it up, but it, it's very true. The reason why the Cubs are so good right now is because of their depth and, and guys that you didn't expect to contribute are able to make up for the superstars of Chris Bryant and Javier Baez. I mean, Jason Hayward, he's he's become a guy that you couldn't rely on. Now he is right now, or at least he's getting to that stage. So when guys like Bodie, Hayward, uh, Ian Happ, who's just crushing left-handers right now. Uh, we mentioned Steve Souza Jr. I know he's on the injury list, but I mean, Jason Kipnis. All these guys are contributing. It's a great attribute to have for a winning team where there's a different hero every night. And the article you brought to me earlier today by Sam Miller of ESPN talking about all the different things going on this season, and he laid out 20 of them. 
he talks about no fans and how that plays an effect with home field advantage. And you hear David Ross talk about it a lot, a lot with Lawrence Holmes on his show. That Cubs team is got to be so annoying to the opponent with how loud they are, how excited they are. I mean, it's, it's like a little league game. And I really wonder how much that plays a factor. I think it does. I really do. Because not only are you amping up your whole team, but you're probably really pissing off the other side of the dugout. I would imagine that they are. And I would imagine that a guy like Anthony Rizzo knows exactly what he's doing and knows how to walk right up to that edge and just kind of, kind of live there. Um, I wonder this. Is the bullpen good now? Not great. I'm not asking you whether this is a top-tier, top-ten even Major League Baseball bullpen. But is it good now? And is Craig Kimbrell part of the Cubs' good bullpen? I think it lives and dies on Craig Kimbrell. And I know that's kind of an easy out of that question. But we've seen him three times recently where I I don't want to know I don't want to go ahead and say it's vintage Craig Kimbrell but it's close to it his fastball is there his breaking ball has movement that little hop after he throws does not seem as severe as it was earlier but I mean he is the bread and butter of that Cubs bullpen if he can do what he's done the last three games that's in the back of the opposite of the opposing offense's mind the entire game. And when you have a guy like Jeremy Jeffress who has been an all-star closer for a good team and you can give him that setup role. And I know when we first started this podcast, I was saying put Jeffress as the closer. I, I know it sounds like I'm totally flip-flopping on this, but I don't think anyone expected Craig Kimbrell to have the turnaround that he's had so quickly in terms of Four starts ago was terrible. Three starts ago, oh, okay, there we go. That's what we're looking for. Um, but that back end of the bullpen, Jeffress and Kimbrell, can be lethal. So if you have that that extreme in your bullpen, I think, yes, you are given at least a good bullpen. I think they're very close to a good bullpen. I'm encouraged by how Craig Kimbrell's improved. I, obviously, I think everybody is. But what worries me about Jeffress and Kimbrell at this point is that even even when Kimbrell looked very good, on 20 pitches, he got just two swings and misses, right? I'm not talking about punch-out pitches. I'm talking about two overall swings and misses on 20 pitches. The vertical drop for that breaking ball is not what it was in the past. And if you get to side to side, you know, Joe, I mean, the guy's bat is just going to follow that horizontal movement through the plane of the pitch, and that can still be a hit or, in, in awful cases, a home run. He did get five looking strikes, which to me isn't necessarily a sustainable number, but when you see him humming 98 on the inner third for strike three, and that's a looking strike three, that's that's very encouraging. That lets me know that guys are starting to respect that breaking ball a little bit again, which had not happened at all in his first couple outings. And if that comes back, that's something he can trade on, essentially. That's something he can kind of cash in as he continues to make his improvements. I see Jeremy Jeffress as a guy who is just about ready to go through a little bump in the road. So if if Kimbrell's ascendancy, not to Craig Kimbrell status, but to decent reliever status happens as Jeffress kind of is, it looks to me like he's getting a little, 
a little waxed, uh, maybe a little tired with his usage of late, then that's a good thing. I would say this, though, and I, and I want to get to you, Darvish, before we uh, before we leave the Cubs, head to the Major League Baseball headlines, and then over to the White Sox. Um, I, I do think that Casey Sadler and Rowan Wick, and, and to a lesser degree, Ryan Tapera, they are... They're steady and reliable and much more versatile than I thought. I, I'm not saying that these guys would be headed for, you know, all-star selections 60 games through a normal season, but I'm really encouraged by their outcome, and it leaves me thinking, and maybe this is something for a later podcast, it leaves me thinking about what the improvements the Cubs have made to their infrastructure, right, to the pitching infrastructure have done and can do for other pickups like them in seasons that feel a little bit more normal. How good is you, Darvish? My God. He's just getting back to being able to control all 3,000 of his pitches. So it's just constantly keeping opposing batters guessing the entire way. I, I just think he's so much more fine-tuned with himself as well right now. I, I love the quote, how he just said, I'm not sure what it is, but... I'm throwing pitches a lot better than last year. I mean, that's pretty much everyone's excuse or or admittance right now for him. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what else to say, except we did start to see improvement last year. I mean, it's not totally surprising, but I, I think right out of the gate and the consistency you're getting from him is maybe a little bit contagious because the Cubs rotation as a whole, for the most part, has been productive but I, I just think this this is you, Darvish. This is what you expected from him. This is what you paid him for. And and good on him for figuring it out himself. Since last year's All-Star break, I think this is a tweet from Jordan Bastian at MLB.com. And if I attribute it wrong, I apologize. Mea culpa. Mea maxima culpa. Since last year's All-Star break, a point where he felt fully healthy and comfortable, Darvish has a 2.50 ERA in 18 starts with 152 strikeouts and only 12 walks. That is stunning work. Absolutely stunning. And I think I think the radio hot take in me is is not yet drummed out, but hopefully someday. I still don't think a vast majority of Cubs fans will forgive him for not being good when it mattered more than it does right now. Well then, tell them to take a seat. I mean, what do you what do you want? What do you want from the guy? I mean, not only that. I mean, how about the the PTSD he had to have had from Game Seven of the World Series in 2017, where he just gets lit up, and then he hears, "Oh, you were tipping pitches." Now he's got that in the back of his conscience the entire time. Then you find out about this whole cheating scandal. Who knows? Maybe that was that was a little bump in the confidence for you, Darvish, knowing, "Hey, you know what? It wasn't me. It was them this whole time." Yeah. All these bastards were cheating the entire time and had my stuff. That matters. You know, that brings us, that'll wrap up the Cubs portion. They get the White Sox on Friday, and boy, are we going to have a fun podcast for you on Monday morning. Uh, but that brings us to the Major League Baseball section. And I'll bring this up first only because I, I think we can handle this in about 20 seconds apiece. Trevor Bauer is um, an ass, and I like him very much, but I hate that I like him very much. He was going to wear cleats that said, free Joe Kelly. Um, Joe Kelly and, and you Darvish, obviously, uh, best buds because they've both been victim of the Houston Astros. Uh, Kelly got his revenge, as we've kind of mentioned on a number of podcasts. But what's 
what's been interesting to watch here is Bowers, I don't know, just his ability and willingness to be, to be an ass. Just to be that guy. I appreciate it. My hat's off to you, and I, I wish he would have been able to wear the cleats he wanted. Like I said to you the other day, I love how Trevor Bauer is baseball's bad boy. He's the one stirring really the pots and, and taking sides. I don't know if there's a way to say this as a compliment, but I do. He's kind of like Eric Cartman. He, he knows how to just ruffle everybody's feathers. He knows how to push those buttons. He's a really smart guy. He knows how to, how to take the, the approach where they, they don't have a, an argument that's sustainable. Um, I, I don't know. I, I just love his approach on all of this. He's like, you know how every group of friends, like if you have a crew that you've been around since like high school or college or whatever, every group has a guy that was kind of a jerk when the crew began and then, you know, read a couple of things and did some stuff and whatever and really actually became a jerk. But he's still part of the crew. And that means we get to kill him for being a jerk. But anybody outside the crew doesn't get to do that, right? That's Trevor Bauer. If Major League Baseball's Players Association were the crew, Bauer is the jerk, and nobody gets to make fun of Bauer except the actual crew, and when the commissioner comes after him, the hell with you, you're coming after our, he's our jerk, and we get to support our guy, he's our jerk, damn it. That's, that's, I love, Yeah, yeah I love at the him. bar, it's like, I'll send Matt to go deal with those guys, I, I don't feel like dealing with them right now, Matt, Matt will hand, handle it. Tell him, tell him we had that table first, just, just push him off. You mentioned uh, Sam Miller's piece on ESPN, I don't know, I mean, maybe there's three or four quant writers in baseball's periphery that are as good as Sam Miller, um, I think Sam's at the very top of the of the crow's nest. He's just terrific. He wrote a couple of things that he's been keeping a tab on about this coronavirus shortened season. And I just, Joe, what I'm going to do is I will whip through three of these and then we'll kind of go back through them, I think, if I do a little producing live on the podcast. Sam Miller writes, one, that there's been a huge spike in pitcher injuries this year. And given his study, that's likely a combination of two things. The typical start to the season, which produces a big rash of arm injuries, and the atypical start, the spring training in March, followed by the long layoff by a second short preseason camp in July, then on opening day. One more thing that he writes is, there are no fans in the backdrop, like literally in the vision of these players. Ben Lindbergh suggests a lack of fans as a hypothesis for why batting average is down. Without fans and their wardrobes and all the nonsense and Marlins man in the background, defenders might be picking up the ball off the bat better. Without fans' noise, they might be hearing the crack of the bat better. Here's what really blew my mind. The Wall Street Journal writer Ben Cohen and Joshua Robinson wrote a piece that found NBA players this season are hitting more corner threes and free throws this year, suggesting a similar backdrop effect in other sports. Now, whether you want to chalk that up to the actual visual or the stuff that gets in your head doesn't matter to me. The fact that you've got numbers on this is interesting. There's the universal DH, the third thing he writes, and while it's not like there were a whole bunch of guys willing or ready to come in and just be that masher that like Nelson Cruz is, the 15 quote unquote new designated hitters. So what he's doing here is aggregating all of the designated hitting production in the National League. 
they've hit 220, 300, 400, which is much better than pitchers hitting 130, 160, 160 in about 5,000 plate appearances a year. But it's not as much better as I thought it would be and probably has something to do with offense being kind of down of late. Uh, anyone in particular that you want to pick at first here? Well, I was really ready to dispute the fact that one constant color in the backdrop is allowing fielders to catch more balls. I, I thought that was very much a stretch, but then when you drop the NBA statistic on me, it's I was not expecting that. Uh, not at all. I know! I, I also thought of a, a very hilarious concept of what if fans brought two shirts to every game and while their team was batting, they all wore different color, no, like all whites or, or different colored shirts. But then sure, sure. when their, their team is pitching, then yes, everyone wear a black shirt or a gray shirt or something neutral. Um, I really don't know. That'd be a great question to ask a fielder. I just I don't know because they've been they've been dealing with different backdrops their whole life. I get it. Major league parks have third tiers compared to minor league parks that typically have two. But aren't most of the third tier parks in the major leagues empty already? I mean, unless you're talking about a playoff game, I, I was really ready to just totally dispute that. But I, again, that that NBA number is is uh, baffling. The thing I worry about with these pitchers' injuries, and it's very interesting, too, because it's extreme one way with the White Sox and extreme the other way with the Cubs. Um, I just wonder and I worry about the long-term effect. Like, just like the COVID, just like the coronavirus, just like COVID-19, what are the long-term effects? We understand, yes, it could be very bad when you have it. It affects everybody differently, but we don't know what's going to happen in 10 or 15 years What's going to happen to some of these pitchers that really threw a monkey wrench in their typical preparation five years from now? How is it going to affect them long term? Your numbers on the DH, I, I just think go hand in hand for offense overall being down. Um, I, I don't know if it's typically. Here's the thing. I, I guess nowadays your DH in the NL, it's it's not your best player, right? In the American League, it might be, but but in the National League, it's the guy that oh yeah, we can get him some at bats because we got the DH now. So so maybe that's playing more of a factor than actual designated hitters having more pressure on themselves. I don't know. It's that that's a tough argument. You know, the the one that spoke to me is the injuries uh, more than anything else. Even though I I love the theoretical math of of the backdrop for fielders and stuff like that as much as anybody else. Like that's just nerd gold, is what it is. But I the, the pitcher injuries stand out to me, too, because, you know, like you, I'm very concerned about what this means, especially for young pitchers who are doing all of this kind of for the first time and don't have a an understanding of what it is to undertake a Major League Baseball season, right? Going to the post 30 times or 25 times or whatever a guy's allowed to do now these days. But it's also this. How good is the baseball we're watching then? if we have so many injuries happening and going down, right? Because for every Casey Mize and Dane Dunning that gets brought up to start a game, there's like guy that gets brought up to start another one. And then that guy that has to start another, right? That it, it's not as though there's a steady stream of quantity. And I'm also a firm believer in there is no such thing as a pitching prospect. You know, that's it's a long-held tenet of sabermetricians and, and kind of nerd baseball and has been for about 20 years now. It's just so hard 
to raise and keep healthy a pitching prospect that even if you come up and look like Dunning did or look like Mize did, that's great, but don't get excited because, you know, <laughs> it comes for everybody, right? Tommy John or whatever it is is going to run around for somebody. I think I'm okay watching whatever level of baseball we end up getting for the rest of this season, however much of that we get. But what that could do for for the next couple of seasons and make me question how good is the baseball we're watching really is is a little deflating, even though that's something I can... Again, that's, that's going to be like future Connor's problem and not something that I have to worry about for a couple of months. I'm okay with a little watered-down baseball in 2020. I mean, basically everything we have right now is watered down. So you have less games, so you're seeing the best players play more often. But you're seeing an expanded roster. You're seeing players getting hurt more often. You're seeing players opt out. And you're seeing players come down with the coronavirus. So that gives more time for these extra players that otherwise wouldn't be making their major league debuts. But, but the other thing I, I keep trying to keep in mind this season is these guys are focused on winning and winning alone. Even if they're not, they're focused on winning more than they normally would be. More than half the teams make the playoffs. So almost everybody has a shot. Every game means something because this gets us one step closer to making the playoffs. Nobody, and this is something that Sean Miller brings up in the article, nobody's going for career highs. Nobody's going for records. It's not going to happen in 60 games. So why not just say screw it and win? And for some of these guys that are being called up to the majors that have either little or no minor league experience, they're coming from the collegiate side of baseball, some of them, not all, probably most of them. They're playing in empty ballparks in games that matter, which is what they're used to at the college level. So so I, I, I really like this style of baseball, but only for this year. Um, we, we didn't get to talk, and maybe we'll talk about it in another podcast. Apparently Ian Happ said today that he enjoys these doubleheaders. Uh, yeah. I, I found that to be very surprising. I mean, if you work in baseball and you, you get a little tired of day after day, because believe me, I get it. We're all lucky to do what we do. We all love our jobs, but games can grind on. Seven-inning doubleheaders can be somewhat of a godsend here and there. But I don't think there's a place for it in Major League Baseball for the foreseeable future. But I do appreciate it now. I mean, they're they're wild circumstances. Just let's get all the weird we can jam-packed into the season. One more quick thing here before we get to the White Sox, and uh, we'll just let you know this is kind of happening in real time. Uh, right before we started the podcast, Jeff Passan uh, tweeted that two members of the Mets have tested positive for COVID-19. So Mets Marlins has been postponed. Uh, no word as we're recording this on whether or not that does anything for future games, but as baseball has kind of shown you, they're willing to take things one day at a time if that number stays there. Um, so the, you know, this many days of a full complement of games, you know, that thing that's up in the warehouse, you know, we've gone this many days without an accident. One, one day with a full complement of games in Major League Baseball.
All right, let's get to the White Sox. 15 and 11 now, which by coronavirus's weird math makes them 40.5 and 29.7. They're 9 and 1 versus the Tigers and Royals this year, which is exactly what you've got to do in order to make the playoffs from the AL Central. Beat the hell out of those two very bad teams. And before we get to Dane Dunning and before we get to Tim Anderson, Lucas Giolito was stellar today. Absolutely fantastic. Jason Benetti made a point on the television broadcast to mention that Giolito's ERA in the first inning was 14 and a half, and his highest ERA anywhere else in an inning was 4.5, and he's pitched a lot better than both of those two worst numbers. But those runs count. So there he is, bearing down, throwing a whole bunch of fastballs today, and working incredibly well with his buddy James McCann, and neutralizing the Tigers in a 1-2-3 inning right out of the first, and then continued to neutralize everybody else he faced. Lucas was really, really good today, and he continues to impress me by being the guy that every next time you go, all right, work on this, you can actually watch him working on that thing It's pretty impressive. Not everybody can do that as a starter. I think that's why he was able to make the change from 2018 to 2019 because he's so good at focusing in on what needs to be fixed. And what was the problem against St. Louis? Okay, that first inning, he said, I don't know if I uh, was putting too much pressure on myself, what was going on. He said today he made a point of it to bring up that drive in the first inning to make a point to be as in the zone as he possibly could in the first inning. You bring up the numbers in the first inning. I'm going to bring up some more numbers to support my case, which I know a lot of other White Sox fans are thinking as well. Those eight runs that he's given up in the first inning this year have all been when Yasmani Grandal has caught. This is not a Yasmani Grandal bashing segment. I think he was a great sign. I think he makes the White Sox a much better team. Lucas Giolito and James McCann are peanut butter and jelly. They are bread and butter. They are a duo that both had resurgent years in 2019. Here were some of the quotes today. Jason Benetti and Steve Stone talked to James McCann right after the game. I know what makes him click. He never shook me off. His fastball looked as good as it has since I started catching him. Later on, James McCann went on to say, he knows me. I get the argument. I get James McCann will be a free agent after this year. I get Yasmani Grandal will be on the White Sox for the next few years. I get James McCann probably will or at least could be signed for more money by another team. I get Lucas Giolito is a Major League Baseball pitcher, and he needs to be able to throw to whomever. It's a 60-game season. This is the second game that Giolito has thrown to McCann. In two games, 14 innings, he has a 129 ERA. He has 22 strikeouts in those 14 innings. He had a career-high 13 strikeouts on Thursday against Detroit. In a 60-game season, knowing the chemistry that they have, I don't see why Lucas Giolito is not throwing to James McCann for the majority of the rest of the season. 
I think you sprinkle in Yasmani Grandal here and there when catching James McCann. I mean, that's the thing. Grandal can catch. There's plenty of other opportunities for Grandal to catch. And when or if you get to the playoffs, and I say when because I think the White Sox are a playoff team, are you having James McCann catching Lucas Giolito? I would believe so to win that game, not to develop chemistry for what's in the future. I I just really think moving forward, it's got to be Giolito McCann for the majority. Yeah, I I think it will be. Um, I think the numbers speak for themselves, and I think those two guys have spoken quite a bit about it, so you may as well. But there's no doubt in my mind that you know, when we're talking about Lucas Giolito being the guy who goes, okay, here's a new thing. This is what you have to learn. This is the new challenge. His next challenge, I mean, outside of, you know, mechanical issues that might pop up for him this season, right, is is learning how to throw without James McCann, right? And I don't mean that he can't. I mean, he'll have to. McCann's going to be out of this game, I mean, far before Lucas Giolito is. Just look at the age difference. Look at the position, right? I mean, that's just, it's going to happen. So that'll be uh, next. Really quick, sorry, sorry, one more no, point. No, no, go ahead. You got to put into account how the preseason was so abbreviated this year. So there wasn't enough time to develop that chemistry that maybe you would have with a whole month of spring training, which you probably will have in 2021. That's true. That's true. That'll be extra work for the two of them, and they'll likely need it. Uh, what's been interesting for me to watch, too, with, with the White Sox is on the offensive end, um, Tim Anderson is just being that guy right now. And and I don't, since coming back from the injury, coming into today's game where he hit another home run, since coming back from the injury, 406, 441, 875, four home runs, uh, plus the home in a day. So that makes it five. Uh, the guy sets the table. The guy understands how to hit for power. He understands how to, and we talked about this before in an earlier podcast, I think it was episode six, rate and review. He understands how to hunt for his pitch now. Like, he he gets what it is to work on at bat, not just pray for a fastball that comes around because he knows he can turn it around, right? It's been really fun to watch him. Um, I, I do still have some defensive questions about Tim and about this team. Um, I think they're fair, to be quite honest with you. Uh, and the reason that there is – the reason there's no reason – to move him off of shortstop right now is because he's got a severe amount of athleticism, the kind you trust to hopefully eventually get it at short and be a a steadier guy, right? A much steadier guy on some routine plays and understand where to take his chances. Um, but there, Tim's the heartbeat of this team as much as anybody. He he just he just truly is. Well, yeah, the defensive doubt is is totally fair, and I think this week especially it was just kind of masked by how well the offense was because pretty much everybody was pitching in. Uh, Tim Anderson is just completely locked in right now. He's he's mashing the ball like you said. He he's really doing a great job of of waiting for his pitch and locking in on his pitch and. Again, on the television broadcast with Stone and Benetti, I mean, Stone picked up how he's he's shifting, he's shuffling his feet in the batter's box right before the pitch comes. I mean, you're not able to do that unless you're totally locked in, totally confident with your approach. Uh, we talked about it a few podcasts ago about 
you're right. He's the heartbeat. That guy needs to be leading off right now because he's setting the tone. If he comes away with a home run, okay, there's a quick one nothing lead. I mean, this isn't the Alfonso Soriano days where everyone's begging for Lou Pinella to move Soriano down in the fifth spot so he can start hitting some home runs with runners on. I mean, this is a guy that is just setting the tone for the offense. He's a spark plug is what it is. And it's, uh, what was it, today or maybe yesterday? When No, it was when Abreu hits the home run. I mean, he's the guy at the top of the dugout right now when another player goes deep and just creates some momentum for this team. Uh, yeah, heart heartbeat's a good way to put it. They are, the White Sox are seventh in the American League standings. They are... With a with a five seventy seven winning percentage, they are clear of the Orioles by seventy seven points. And uh, the Orioles haven't played yet tonight. I they have one coming up in just a couple. Um, the Oakland A's are at the very top, six eighty. Tampa Bay six, and it feels doesn't it feel weird to just like read off winning percentages because that's that's what we're doing, right? The records don't matter. We're not going to play a full 60 games. Nobody is, maybe nobody's going to play a full 60 games. Um, but the winning percentages are what matter. So being clear of the Orioles by 77 points is kind of what does. And they're chasing down the Houston Astros, who who got hot and won, I think it was five, six, seven in a row, but lost Alex Bregman for what will be a, a very, very long time and have already lost um, uh, Diaz as well. And uh, Jordan Alvarez too. Oh, Jordan Alvarez, right? I always say it's it's Diaz with the Rays and, and Jordan Alvarez with the. Uh, with Honestly, the it's it's weird. It's weird just hearing other teams that aren't in the American League or National League Central because obviously this is a Chicago-based baseball podcast, and it's it's just weird to be talking about the Rays and the Orioles because it's almost like those teams don't even exist because we never specifically focus on them in a game. I I actually the reason I confuse the two is that. In my out-of-the-park baseball game, uh, where I'm simmed all the way through 2023, they, they swapped teams. Uh, Diaz is now with oh. the other, and then Alvarez is with the other oh, one. So nice I, trade. Yeah, I do that often. Uh, I don't know was that, was the, if it was them for them. I think one was a free agent sign and one was a trade. Anyway, nobody gives a damn about that. What I did watch and really enjoy was Dane Dunning versus Casey Mize. My goodness, was that fun. Uh, a real pitcher's duel up until... You know, Dunning got a little tilty in the fifth, and then in the sixth gave up a handful. Uh, Casey Mize kind of the same. I, I thought the White Sox got to him well after being absolutely befuddled by that splitter or, or two-seamer, however he's holding it. It's disappearing. That was fun. That was really fun to watch. I thought Stone was brilliant on the broadcast, being able to really dig in to two stellar pitching performances. Just another, you know... Uh, another piece of tape for the reel that's going to put him in the Hall of Fame someday. Steve Stone, um, I don't know about Dunning or Mize, hopefully. It'd be fun to watch. Two guys having made their first start against each other, ending up in the Hall of Fame together. That's crazy talk at this point. But Stoney's, you know, Stoney's going to be a Hall of Fame broadcaster. Um, what I thought was really cool is Dane Dunning's family letting him know that if you look into the stands, you'll find us. They They bought cutouts and put them in the stands so that they could at least be there in in some way shape or form for their boys start that was that was pretty cool to see and uh and kind of fun to hear Jason and Stoney go back and forth about well Jason mentioned on the on the broadcast too I don't know if it was Casey Mize or somebody else but Somebody was making their big league debut, and their family just so strongly wanted to be in the same vicinity, so they went to that city 
and just watched at a, a local restaurant or bar or something like that. Did you hear that? Yeah, it was it was the game. It was a game in Cincinnati, and I can't remember the kid that that ended up pitching that game. But yeah, they they went in town and just all kind of hung out at a hotel room together to watch on TV from 40 miles away the kids start as opposed to 400 that's cool yeah i i would definitely do something like that um if i had any type of athleticism in my bloodlines but um i regress the the fact that you get a cool showcase like that between two highly touted prospects making their big league debut clearly the white Sox have all these guys coming up even though the majority of them are up now making their major league debuts but when you got Eloy Jimenez going up it was opening day I mean you get the buzz of opening day same thing with Luis Robert this year but obviously it's watered down because it's 2020 the Dane Dunning start reminding me of Michael Kopech's debut I mean it's it's all this anticipation it's everybody focusing in on somebody starting the baseball game and how long can they go how good can they be and I think Dunning really showed it with the movement on his breaking pitches and basically it's it's something that you're just watching every single part of his movement every single thing he does and when a position player does that you get to see it two or three times when they come up to the plate but when it's a starting pitcher it's just a a whole different type of atmosphere and I think it's really cool that you got to see it on both sides in that game no doubt about it I I thought it was kind of funny to see uh on Twitter kind of White Sox Twitter lose their minds when Dunning got sent back to the alternate site um I I mean I I think you and I I say this like kind of tongue-in-cheek and I don't mean to be pedantic about it or anything like that but people who who had worked in baseball people who have like kind of been around some of those moves immediately went to look at the schedule and saw the off day before i think it's three against the cubs and then the off day and then two against the pirates and then the off day and immediately you're going yeah okay it's because of the off days and you pitch like that with the injuries they have he'll be back they're just got, not going to use him until after that second off day and turns out you know that's what it is i mean my first thought was is he healthy, right? I mean, that that should be everyone's first thought. Like, right. is he healthy? Make sure he's fine. Um, because it had been a, a little bit of a long road back from Tommy John for Dane Dunning. But, you know, once you see that schedule, you kind of understand, okay, there we go. So now we're looking at what is your next best trip through the White Sox rotation look like after that Pirate series, right? After you've had those off days to reset some things, um, three against the Cubs, off day, two against the Pirates, off day, and then you're back to playing a whole ton of games in a row and really having to go five deep or maybe even six deep in a rotation if you can afford it. It's funny you bring up the the wild reactions from Sox fans because it was almost like he pitched so well in his debut it makes no sense to drop him down, but that that's exactly why, so that they can get more out of him. Um I, I, I like more of Dane Dunning in this rotation. I, I think he's deserved to continue with it. I, I know I brought this question up to you, but I, I really wonder, and I get it, it's one game for Dane Dunning. He he did have his problems later on when he was exited, but I really wonder if Dane Dunning's success this year, possible success I should say, affects the leash on Reynaldo Lopez. And I'm not saying to totally give up on him. I'm saying, where is his role in this pitching staff? Is it a long reliever? Is it a guy you stick in the bullpen and you hide? I think uh, the other injuries that they're dealing with right now with Carlos Rodon and uh, Reynaldo Lopez play a factor in that. But 
Dane Dunning was the third guy of that Adam Eaton trade. And I I really don't think that the White Sox front office looks at it this way. I'm, I'm sure this is more of a fan side. But you almost look at it like, all right, yeah, Giolito, yes, great return. Dane Dunning, pretty good return so far. So if two out of three ain't bad. But, um, I, again, I, I don't think that's the way the White Sox front office is looking at it. But... At what point do you start to look at the clock of Reynaldo Lopez and how many chances you give him in the rotation at least? I, I think that's fair to ask. Um, you know, I, I think that answer gets so muddy because of what this season is and what the return to baseball in 2021 will look like. So with those exceptions, you know, kind of taken into the equation, I, I've been looking at peripherals, not not just like your classic baseball peripherals, but just like what does tilt on a breaking ball look like? What does fastball command look like often enough? Can he pitch when the velocity isn't fully gassed up, right? All of these different things. And, you know, for me, I I like Reynaldo Lopez, but all of those things scream a guy that needs to be used in short bursts as opposed to can handle a full start. And, and that's okay, right? I mean, that happens for a lot of guys. You'll, you'll get, hopefully, like you say, two starters out of that Adam Eaton trade. And I think a lot of White Sox fans will be happy that the best thing Adam Eaton does for the franchise is leave the darn thing. But if you've got that kind of arsenal coming back in a trade, you're okay. And I don't think that just because Reynaldo Lopez might have to go to the bullpen that he can't then be effective. I, I don't think it's a hide him scenario. I look at the stuff and the, the octane that he is able to bring at times and think, okay, maybe a, a better plan for him, a, a better training plan, a better um, you know regimen from the White Sox can can help him stay healthier longer, even if that means pitching in shorter doses. I, I think that's a problem for <laughs> we're, this is kind of a theme of the episode, right? I think it's a problem for future Rick Hahn. I think at this point and and with what this season looks like, you throw as many healthy starters into as many starts as you can. And just kind of go from there and let things fall where they may. Um, I I do think though that with the way the White Sox are are powered offensively, you know the ability to hit home runs, kind of one through nine through the order, that allows you some flexibility with an already banged up rotation. We'll just have to see if that continues against teams that aren't named Tigers and aren't named Royals, right? Yeah, and I think um, something I, I kind of categorize Reynaldo Lopez a little bit, not not totally, but a little bit like Dylan Cease in the way that elite stuff can be elite stuff, but but the execution needs to be worked on. So I, I'm in no way ready to put Dylan Cease in the bullpen whatsoever, but who knows, maybe if Reynaldo Lopez faces a, a handful less batters and uh, can maybe hide a pitch until he needs it for a, for a chase to put away some guy. Maybe that's the best way to utilize him. And again, I, I think this is the year to possibly do that. Now, of course, he's got to be back and healthy in order to even tinker with that. Um, but you're, you're kind of seeing that with uh, Gio Gonzalez in the opposite way. But I know they basically grabbed him and knew he was going to be an emergency starter if need be but you've got a lot of wiggle room there as long as you've got the health I know that's not what the Sox have right now but who knows what this pitching staff is going to look like health-wise in a few weeks if they're able to get those guys back 
I think you can move some pieces around in the spirit of winning in a shortened 2020 season. Yeah, it might be easiest to get buy-in for an atypical role from a kid who's always been a starter in a season like this, right? Um, you got to be, you got to have conviction when you throw a pitch. You got to have conviction when you move to a different position as well. And, and for pitchers, that's going from starter to bullpen. That's something that, you know, Carson Fulmer never really got his head around. I don't know that, that conviction necessarily would have changed his trajectory, um, but that was really difficult for him. And it's been difficult for a lot of guys in the past, but I think if you were to look at somebody and go, listen, you're, you're just coming back from a bad wing. You can help this team more and pitch more if you do it this way. What do you say? I think you get a positive response more often than you would um, in another season. And, and maybe... Uh, that'll be the case for Ronaldo Lopez. He comes back healthy, which is the most important thing for the White Sox. Really the most important thing for every every one of the walking wounded the White Sox have. That does it for the Baseball From Home podcast, Episode 8. Really looking forward to Episode 9 because it'll be three games for the Cubs and White Sox starting Friday and going through Saturday and Sunday. Two night games and then one afternoon game. So... Uh, just like today, next Monday's podcast might be out just a little bit early and I have a whole bunch of fun for you too. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on well, maybe Sunday night or probably Monday morning after the Cubs and White Sox first series of 2020. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.